And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, precious Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, O Lord, as we look upon the Scripture this morning, we look to you, Father, to give us insight and understanding, Holy Spirit, to open the text to us, illuminate it, that may our minds and our hearts be able to comprehend what you're communicating to us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me as the preacher minister of the Word, that you would give me wisdom and understanding and an anointing, that I would not merely be giving a theological lecture, but a spirit-filled sermon that would minister to your people, feed your people, that would give us conviction and give us hope. And I pray, Lord, that we would see through this temptation that Christ went through, that he was tempted in all areas like we are, yet without sin, and that we could look to him as our faithful high priest who could empathize with us. Give us grace and wisdom that we may not be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week, the World Health Organization released a report on issues of malnutrition and obesity in the world. And according to a study from 2022, it was discovered that one billion people in the world are now living with obesity. In fact, worldwide obesity among adults has more than doubled since 1990 and has quadrupled among children and adolescents ages 5 to 19 years old. The data has shown that 43% of adults were overweight in 2022. In fact, obesity has become more of a problem for the world than malnutrition. There are more people fighting the malady of obesity. Now, obesity brings a lot of health problems. It brings cardiovascular issues, cancer, diabetes, and even mental disease is brought on by obesity. And one of the main culprits in this, the common denominator, is sugar. And in recent years, we've discovered that sugar is as bad for us as drugs or alcohol. It does a lot of damage to our system. It creates unnecessary fat, and we are sugar addicted. We eat a lot of bread, pasta, cookies, cake, and it is the number one cause of obesity. And I say this as someone who is fighting daily the temptation to eat bread, pasta, and cookies and cake. It is very difficult to resist the lure of sugar-based foods. Once you do overcome it, it is easier to stay on a diet that is filled with protein and vegetables. But if you are accustomed to eating sugar, it is very addictive. And quitting sugar is like quitting smoking cigarettes, I could tell you, because I've done both and they're both equally hard. The temptation can be real, and it could be very challenging. The funny thing is that up until recently, bread was considered for thousands of years as the staff of life. In every culture and civilization, particularly cultures where people 
are malnourished. Bread is the basic necessity of life. Where we see it as something so bad, most cultures throughout history see it as something good. Even in ancient Israel and in the Bible, we see that bread is fundamental to the diet of God's people and fundamental to the diet of ancient Israelites. And that brings us to our sermon today because when we're dealing with the topic of temptation, no one understood temptation more than Jesus Christ, who although was God in the flesh, did have a real human nature and in his humanity experienced all the things we as human beings experience. He experienced pain, he experienced emotions, he experienced uh, um, sickness, and he experienced hunger. He experienced hunger. The Lord Jesus was not a robot. He ate and he got hungry and he got hungry again because he was a human being and he needed food in order to survive. And so in preparation for his messianic ministry, he was called by the Spirit into the wilderness and of his own will committed to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Now this is symbolic. There's a theological symbolism here because the, the number 40 is often symbolic of preparation and this was a preparatory time, a testing time for the Lord, for his messianic ministry. What kind of Messiah would he be? Uh, upon his baptism, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so this 40 days in the wilderness was Satan to tempt that and test that whole preposition. Are you indeed the son of God? Is God your father? And if so, what kind of father is he? And what kind of Messiah, what kind of son will you be? And the test would prove that Jesus indeed was the eternal son of God. And so in this testing for the 40 days, the Lord Jesus commits himself to fast. And for 40 days, he is alone in the wilderness. For 40 days, he is a communing with God in prayer. For 40 days, he is not eating. I am sure he's drinking water because you can't survive that long on water without water. And yet it was throughout this period of time that eventually at the end of the 40 days, not at the beginning, not during, but at the end of the 40 days, Satan would meet him. And it is interesting because Satan met him when he was, as the scripture says, hungry. That's a very important word in our sermon today, hungry. Because it reminds us that as Jesus in his humanity hungered, the temptation to intervene in this process and use his divine power to turn stones into bread was very real. It was very powerful and very compelling. Remember, as I said last week, you don't know the power of temptation until you've actually resisted it, until you felt the compelling power to draw you and lure you into doing something that is not right. And so make no mistake about it, in this hunger, and by the way, I don't think any of us have ever truly experienced hunger. Not in the, not in the sense, I was reading an article this past week about people in Afghanistan suffering under the reign of the Taliban. The Taliban is a brutal regime, and because of, of, their, of their brutal regime, there have been invoked sanctions on Afghanistan, and as a result, the Taliban doesn't suffer, but the people of Afghanistan suffer. 
And I was reading one story about a boy who was starving for about 10 days and didn't have a meal. And he would go to bed at night and he couldn't sleep because the hunger pains were so severe he couldn't sleep. I don't think we've ever experienced that kind of hunger. That's the kind of hunger Jesus was experiencing. His abdomen was in real pain. His belly was filled with gas. And Satan comes to him at this opportune time to tempt him to use his own divine messianic power to take care of his needs. Just a note, the devil is real. The devil's not an imagination. He's not a fairy tale figure. He is real. He's a fallen angel. He exists. And although we have probably never personally encountered Satan in the way Christ has, he leads one-third of the fallen angels of heaven, which can be legion and assaulting the people of God. Satan's presence is real. And as an enemy of God, he hates God, he hates humanity, and he hates Jesus. His domain was threatened when Jesus came into the world, and he is determined to do everything in his power to subvert and derail the mission of Christ. And so begins this attack. So what are some things we're going to look at here today? Well, the first thing we want to look at in this sermon is understanding the theological significance of what's taking place. Because Jesus, as the eternal Son of God in the wilderness, represents two other sons of God in the Bible. Remember Luke, when he gives us uh, Jesus' genealogy, he traces it all the way back to Adam, the Son of God. He is the first Son of God, the firstborn Son of God, the first human being. And Adam, remember, also was put in a situation where he was tested. His situation was to be put in the Garden of Eden. God gave him a very simple command. You can eat anything you want. Just don't eat the free, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for it is my tree, and the day you eat it, surely you shall die. And in the garden, when that occurred, we know that Jesus, I mean, sorry, that Adam was tempted. He was tempted through his wife, obviously. It was the means by which Satan came to him, and where did he attack? He attacked his hunger, he attacked the belly, for the, for the fruit looked good for food. And in his hunger, and his hunger was not merely for food, but it was a hunger to be like God, he failed the test, he failed the test. Another son of God in the Bible is also brought to our attention, that's Israel. Remember, Israel is the firstborn son of God in the Old Testament. He, Israel is the, the son of God in the sense that that, that Israel represents everything that God is mediating through humanity too. If you want to have a relationship with God, it's through national Israel. If for 40 years and 40 nights, uh, 40 years, and I'm uh, sorry, rather, Israel was in the wilderness and Israel was tested, but Israel failed. Israel also was driven by hunger. They cried about the manna and uh, they failed the test. But Christ, the true son of God, passes the test. He passes the test. Christ did what Adam couldn't. He did what Israel couldn't. He is the true son of God. And so in this first temptation, let's look at the craftiness of Satan from three perspectives. He's attacking Jesus on three different fronts and three different angles. First, he's attacking him on the fatherhood of God. Second, it is a temptation to give in to his carnal appetite. 
And thirdly, it's a temptation to be self-sufficient, all three in one. Number one, the attack on the goodness of the fatherhood of God. You see, Satan heard God the Father, just like everyone else, declare uh, that Jesus was the beloved Son of God in whom he was well pleased. And as I already mentioned, Satan wants to call the question, or, uh, or call into question, the goodness of God. The word devil in Greek is translated diabolos. And we, we've heard that word before, diabolos. And the word literally translates into slanderer. That means, that means that Satan, the devil, is a liar. He slanders. And the chief person that Satan slanders is God. Satan's goal is to lie about God. You know, we're in a heated political season right now. There's a presidential election, and we're a deeply divided country. And what is the game of politics? It's to slander your opponent. The game of politics is to, to create a narrative of your opponent and to make them put them in the worst possible light and to make them look like a horror show. That's the goal of politics, which is why it's, I don't know how any Christian could be involved in politics because it's the devil business. And so Satan, the first politician, the one who seeks to usurp God's throne, you seek usurp God's power, you seek usurp God's authority. It was Satan in his desire to usurp God's authority lies about God. Tells Adam and Eve, did God really say that you'll die? Jesus called him the father of lies, John 8:44. But notice that Satan could only do that in the context of want or desire. Jesus was very hungry. And in his hunger, he was desiring food. And it's in that desire of food that he can begin to question the goodness of God. What Satan was really saying to Jesus is if God really loves you, if you are really his son and he really cares about you, how is he going to allow you to languish here in the wilderness? What kind of father would give his son stones for bread? Matthew tells us that, right? Matthew chapter 7, verse 9 through 11. When Jesus is talking about the goodness of the father, he relates it to human fathers. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? All right? He said, if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You're evil, and if your child asks you for a bread, you're not going to give him a rock. And so what Satan is really doing is, is underhandedly questioning the goodness of God. What kind of father is he to you if all he leaves you is these stones here in the wilderness? What happened to preparing a feast for you in the midst of your enemies? You see, in the Bible, a father is a leader, a provider, and he cares for his children. It's a fitting image and title for God who fulfills all those ideals. But isn't that how Satan often tempts us? As we even address this subject Wednesday night in our Bible study, oftentimes we may feel like we're languishing. There's a want, there's a need, there's something we're hungering for and we desperately want in life and we feel deprived of it. 
And it's that time when Satan whispers in our ear, what kind of God would allow you to languish? I'll never forget when I was in eighth grade, there was a dance and uh, I wanted to go to it. Everybody I knew was going to this dance. It was a very popular dance. It was, uh, it was a dance in the city of Yonkers where, where basically all the, all, the, all the kids were going. It was a freestyle concert. If you don't know what freestyle music is, don't worry about it. You don't need to know. But when I grew up, that was very popular. And I went, I wanted to go desperately, and I could not go. My parents forbade me from going. And I was really angry and really upset about it. And I was really um, upset. It was, I was deprived of something I really hungered for, I really wanted. And I'll never forget one of my friends said, what kind of parents do you have that won't let you go to the concert? That's the devil. That's the devil calling into question, right? My parents did what they thought was right, and they probably spared me from getting into some kind of trouble, of which I was prone to at that age. So all in all, we know that our parents are good, and they withhold things from us when they know it's good for us. And the same thing, God allows us at times and withholds certain things, and he allows us to, to experience want and hunger and desire, and that's okay. In an age of instant gratification, we don't need everything yesterday. We've lost the sense of delayed gratification. We want everything now. We're used to, if our Wi-Fi signal is not fast enough, we start banging on our phone. We've lost that sense of waiting. Well, Satan is tempting Christ, but moreover, he's tempting him to question the goodness of God the Father. And it's a reminder Bad company corrupts good morals. People will always around you. Oftentimes when people fall away from God, it's because the company they keep, their friends, the people that surround them will, oh yeah, well what kind of God would allow you to be in a situation? Or what kind of God would, I, 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 this is constantly the question I get when I encounter unbelievers. What kind of God would allow people to starve in the world? We're talking about Jesus hunger in the wilderness, but oftentimes I'll, I'll encounter people that I know they're not Christians and say, well, if there's a God, why are so many people starving to death in the world? Why doesn't God cure world hunger? And so it's always laid at the door of God. It's his fault. So years ago, I was at a dinner with Claudia, and this was um, maybe the first couple of years we were married, visiting a friend of mine, and um, he asked me the question, very, that very question, if, if, if there's a God, why are so many people hungry? And I said, it's because of people like you. It's because you have a table, you're feeding me a full dinner, you have probably more than what you need, and you don't give enough to help those who are poor. The problem doesn't rest in God, the problem rests in humanity that are sinful. The people have far more than they need. That the top 1% of the world is living in lavish, extravagant luxury that is completely unnecessary. He didn't like that answer, but he didn't have a response for me. It wasn't God's fault. The second thing Satan does is he attacks Christ in where it hits his appetite, his humanity. You see, all human beings have an appetite, and that appetite is not just for food, but God has given us an appetite for, for and a hunger for other things, a hunger for self-satisfaction, a hunger for, for a sense of belonging, a, a hunger for purpose, a hunger for uh, uh, to work, a hunger for sex, a hunger to sleep, a hunger 
um, to enjoy life. These, this appetite is part of our basic human nature to enjoy the world that God has given us. The problem is, is that appetites often control us rather than us controlling our appetites. You see, tempting Jesus to turn the stones to bread was very appealing. It would have satisfied his appetite, but it would have meant that Jesus allowed his appetite to rule over him. It would have meant that he failed the test because he gave in to his impulse to gratify the flesh. Philosopher Leon Koss puts it this way regarding Satan. He says, the Satan coming in the form of serpent is not a mistake. He goes on to say, for I quote, for the serpent is a mobile digestive tract that swallows its prey whole. In this sense, the serpent stands for pure appetite, end quote. The Bible says we're not ignorant of the schemes of the devil. The devil succeeded, as I said earlier, in causing two other sons of God to fall through appetite, Adam and Israel. Israel, in particular, caved in to their appetites after all the signs and wonders and miracles of God delivering them out of Egypt, seeing the Red Sea parted, seeing the pillar of fire and of and, and of smoke and, and seeing the wonders of God. As soon as they get out of the wilderness, what's the first thing they say? We're hungry, we're thirsty. Where's the food? We had more in Egypt than we have here. One man put it this way. They envied the dead bodies of the Egyptians floating in the Red Sea because at least they had full bellies. They cried over and over and over. They were people given over to their appetite and that whole generation was wiped out, laid to waste in the wilderness. The Bible tells us about another person given over to his appetite. We examined it on Wednesday night at our midweek Bible saying that is Esau, the brother of Jacob. In Genesis 25, 29 through 32, he came in from the field and he was hunting, he was hungry, and he, he sees J- Jacob cooking a, a, a lentil stew. He says, I'm hungry, give me some of that stew, I'm, I'm famished, I'm starving. And Jacob, being the clever one, says, sell me your birthright and I'll give you the stew. Just have the birthright. What do I care? Give me the stew. At, at the service, it doesn't seem that big of a deal. But what it demonstrated was that Esau valued a bowl of stew more than he valued his birthright. He was conquered by his belly. He didn't care. He basically said, forget about my birthright. Forget about the blessing, the inheritance of Abraham and Isaac. I don't want that. I just want to eat now. I want what I want, and I want it now. Give it to me. Here, take my birthright. And he lost it from that point forward. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that there should be no one immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, although he sought it with tears. What do you hold of more value? Your birthright as a child of God? Your birthright as a child of God? Or do you or do you value satisfying the cravings of your carnal appetite? So often we just cave in to the impulse. We cave in to what we want. We think that it'll make us happy, not realizing 
that it's the very thing that causes us to sell our birthright. Thirdly, the attack of Satan is an attack on the dependence of God. So we see Satan first is tempting Jesus by questioning what kind of father, what kind of God allows you to languish in this horrible situation Why doesn't he intervene? Secondly, he tempts him by appealing to his carnal appetite. And thirdly, he basically is attacking his dependence on God. By Satan tempting Jesus to turn the stones into bread, he's basically tempting Jesus to declare his independence from God and operate on his own. He's tempting him to use his power, his divine power, to perform a miracle, not for the glory of God, not to bring people to salvation, but to fill his own belly. Very tempting, in fact, if you think about it. Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, has the power to do whatever he wants. Remember when he was facing Pontius Pilate, and Pilate says, are are you truly the son of God? He says, says, I can call a legion of angels right now and end this all. He didn't have to go to the cross. He could have snapped his fingers and, and, and terminated the whole world in a second. But Christ didn't come merely to use his divine power to serve himself. He came to serve God and to serve us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was the epitome of a selfless servant, the servant, the suffering servant of God. He entrusted himself completely to the Father if he questions the goodness of God and he begins to rely on himself, then he sees his immediate needs and he turns away from God and provides for himself. He's failed as the Messiah. He cannot be our mediator. He's no better than you or I. Imagine if he did change the rocks into bread. Where would we be today? He would have satisfied his hunger but we, would all, we wouldn't be here worshiping. We'd all be lost and condemned to hell. He deprived himself and he hungered and he depended on God to get him through it. So often when we're in a situation where we want something really bad, where we're hungering in our carnal appetite for something, we will be tempted. We will be tempted to meet that need on our own and step ahead of God. But in so doing, what do we do? We declare our independence of God. We demonstrate we don't trust him. And we demonstrate that our appetite has greater bondage and power over us than God himself. We will be in those situations. But when tempted to do that, we must follow Christ. And so Christ not only is tempted, but he shows us how to overcome the temptation here in this passage. Well, that begins our second point, how to resist the temptation that we face. So how does the Lord do it? Well, without being oversimplistic, he looks to God's word. Thus saith the Lord. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now we've heard that so often, right? It's almost cliche, but what's the context of it? Let's go back in our Bibles. If you have your Bible handy, turn to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. I want you to read this with me. 
I want you to see the context in which Jesus is quoting this from. This is the book of Deuteronomy is written. Moses is writing to Israel. This is when they pretty much have, have ended their 40-year uh, trek in the wilderness. One generation has passed. The next generation is getting ready to enter the promised land. And, and God's, God's using Moses to remind them of all that transpired over this time and to speak truth into their hearts and to, to, to bring about a sense of commitment in their lives. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3, it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Isn't that exactly what we just read about Christ? Right? That he's 40 days in the wilderness being tested. It was to see what was in his heart. And notice what it says here in the word. He humbled you to Israel and let you hunger. God allowed you to hunger and he fed you with manna. Bread from heaven, remember that? Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. They were in the wilderness and, it, and, and Moses saying, God made you hungry. God tested you, but God sustained you. He provided for you. He gave you the manna, and even the manna you cursed. Look at Numbers chapter 11 when they have this big fit and tantrum. We're sick of eating manna, they tell Moses, and that didn't go too well. It was another episode of judgment. But the point is God provided for them. He humbled them. He wanted them to rely on his goodness and grace. And the purpose of all of it is that they may realize man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. In other words, there is more to life than food. There is more to life than just meeting the gratification of the flesh. God disciplined them and humbled them so they would learn to depend on God alone. And by Jesus quoting this scripture, he's telling Satan that he will rely on God alone, that there is a greater purpose for him than merely satisfying his belly and living for momentary pleasure. John told his disciples in John 4.34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In fact, look at John's Gospel, chapter 6. When Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness, it's interesting John's perspective he gives us on it. Look at verse 25. John 6, When they found him on the other side, in other words, after he performed the miracle, Jesus went to the other side of the lake of Gal the Sea of Galilee, and they followed him. They followed, they wanted more. They wanted to pursue Jesus. And they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Oh, you I gave you a good meal and you want more. Feed him and they'll always come back, right? 
Put cat food out on the deck and your cat will always come back. But he's here to tell them something. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that we believe in him we sent. And he said to him, what sign do you do that we may believe in you? What, what work will you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. It's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now think how stupid that statement is. Jesus just multiplied a few loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people. And they're saying, give us some sign that you're from God. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. Only Jesus Christ can truly satisfy us. You see, the problem with mankind is that ever since the fall, people are searching for everything in life to fill that void, to bring con contentment, to bring satisfaction, to bring happiness. And people pursue by trying to fill that hunger, that appetite. They, they pursue it through worldly pursuits. If I, if I only have enough money and success and power, I'll be happy. Then why do rich people throw themselves off of buildings and kill themselves? Why do actors who have millions of dollars in the bank and live in Malibu homes overdose on drugs from misery? Why, why do people pursue sex as a, well, if I only uh, just feel that appetite and have all the pleasure I want, I'll be happy. And yet we see so many people that pursue a lifestyle of promiscuity, miserable. Jesus is telling us there's more to life than merely filling your belly. There's more to life than just living for that impulse of the next gratification. And that's him. He's the one. He's the bread of life. You see, Jesus didn't come here to give us more food. He didn't come here to make us rich. He didn't come here to take all away our, our problems. He came here to give us himself to give us his righteousness. To, he promised he would be with us. He'll be with us when you're hungry. You know why? Because he was hungry too. He knew what it was to starve. He knew what it was to feel the pain of being deprived. And he can say, I'll be with you when you are hungry. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. You see, when you're looking for something else to satisfy you, you're essentially saying Jesus is not enough. And you will always come up empty-handed. That's idolatry. Second thing I want to look at is that the key for overcoming this temptation was Jesus distinguishing who he was from what he wanted. Remember what I told you in the beginning of the series? It's all about identity. 
Jesus knew who he was. It was understanding his identity. It was understanding his birthright. It was understanding that he is the eternal son of God and knowing his identity was more important than what he wanted. He knew who he was and because he knew who he was, he would not be determined or dominated by the passions that come into conflict with his relationship with God. And the same thing is for us. If you're a Christian today, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your identity is bound up with Christ. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are now a new creation. You're a son and daughter of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. You're royalty. And knowing who you are will help you and reminding yourself of your identity will help you that you don't go into the pig pen of the world and roll around and slop. It'll keep you from caving into the temptations of the flesh. In knowing who you are, you'll be able to overcome your appetite. Let me conclude with this. You're going to be bombarded with temptations all your life as long as you're a human being because we have an appetite. And our appetite is for many different things. The key for successfully resisting those temptations is controlling our appetites and not allowing them to control us. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13 says this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It means that our bodies belong to Jesus. You don't just do whatever you want. If it's not bringing you closer to God, then, then as Philippians 3.19 tells us, if you're dominated by your appetite, then your God is your belly. I just do what I want all the time. Whatever I feel and whatever I want, then your God is your belly. You're driven by your carnal impulses. The problem with many of us is that we are satisfied so easily. We binge on the junk food, the spiritual junk food of this world, rather than feasting on the true food of God. Let me address these three different areas in appetite in the closing application. Number one, I want to deal with regular food. We need food to live. God created us to eat, and our desire to eat is what drives us to work. In fact, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. But food can become a stumbling block we can make a god of food. We can make an idol of food. And here in America, we are guilty of gluttony. Food has become too big of a deal. And if food controls you and dominates you and you're driven by always eating just what you like and what tastes good and what stimulates your, your, your senses, you're given over to a spirit of gluttony. As I said, obesity is a big problem. Not all people who are obese are eating or, uh, uh, as gluttons. There are people who have really fast metabolisms and they're really thin and they could be gluttons and eat like slobs. What it's really speaking of here is 
that we must control our appetites. It's okay to say no to food. It's okay to skip a meal. It's good to walk away and say no to the junk food that we know is harmful to us. It's discipline. It shows the spirit, the fruit of the spirit of self-control. Secondly, sex is another natural appetite. God created it to be enjoyed by husband and wife in the confines of marriage. But once again, that which is natural has become perverted and misused. It's no understatement to say that in America we are an over-sexualized society. One of the biggest problems in the church today that pastors all around are saying they're dealing with is how many people are consumed with pornography. You know what that is? That's the junk food of this world. Doesn't bring satisfaction. It is a lie. It is a lie from Satan. It brings a temporary pleasure that makes you feel miserable in the end and destroys your mind and your soul. And so many are governed by it. I'll never forget years ago, there was a guy in our church. He was a member. We had to put him on church discipline because he was dominated by his sexual appetite and could not give up a relationship that was really immoral and ungodly and, and, and wicked. And he says, you don't understand, I have to have sex. I've got to have it. It's natural. God gave it to me. I've got to fulfill that need. Let me just say something. Anyone who thinks like that, you will not die if you don't have sex. You will be okay. You will survive. You will be just fine. You can remain celibate until you marry. You could remain celibate the rest of your life and you will be okay. No one has to fulfill that gratification. That's your belly ruling over you. Thirdly, is the appetite for things. It's not only food and sex that appeal to our appetites, but we have an appetite for things an accumulation for worldly goods rooted in covetousness. We think that the more we have, the better we'll feel. If I just have this next thing, I'll feel better. But let, me get a, a, another, let me get a new car or let me get a new phone or let me get a new outfit or let me, let me get a new haircut or let me buy this or let me buy that. And, 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 and so we have this consumerism where people are just constantly being driven to spend more money because they think by having and accumulating more stuff, you'll be happier you will not be happy. It will not make you feel better. It doesn't work. You're just going to get debt. You're going to be broke. And all those things that you've accumulated over time, and trust me, I have accumulated a lot of stuff over 22 years. You look at it and you say, why did I even buy this stuff? And one day you're going to get rid of it. It's either going to go to the Salvation Army, you're going to throw it away, and you're going to find it useless. You do not need things. But again, it's the appetite. It's the, the compulsion. I need this. I, I'm hungry. I want it. And I guess it's one of the respectable sins that we overlook. Let me answer this. To answer the struggle against all these temptations, there is only one solution, and that is to find our contentment and satisfaction in Christ alone. He is the bread of heaven he satisfies all our longings. Jesus is enough. When we say Jesus isn't enough, 
we are operating in unbelief. We're saying, I need something more than that. We're operating in unbelief. We're capitulating to the lie of the devil. Because the devil tells you Jesus isn't enough. Remember, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Satan is the father of lies. He's the slander. He's telling you Jesus is lying. Don't believe it. It's a lie. Everything you're hearing is a lie. Believe me. Believe in yourself is the greatest lie, isn't it? Satan doesn't want you to be a Satanist. There is a call today of Satanism, but Satan doesn't want you to be Satanist. He just wants you to believe in yourself, to rely on yourself. What's the greatest sin ever? To exalt self above God. Let me encourage you with this. You may suffer some deprivation in this life, and you will suffer deprivation in this life, but God is a good father, and he knows what you need, and he knows what you want. And God knows what we need even before we even ask for it. And God will withhold no good thing from those who fear him. God will never suffer the righteous to beg bread, Psalm 37, 25 through 26 says. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing, and the righteous will not be forsaken. More than anything, there is coming a day when everything, every desire will be satisfied. In the new heavens and new earth, in Isaiah 25, 6, listen to the promise for us. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow and aged wine, well-refined. One day we will feast in the house of Zion. One day, we are going to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it will not end. We will not be hungry anymore. We will be completely satisfied. We will not suffer want or lack anymore. We will not be deprived no more. We will have the fullness of everything God intended for us. And this meal we are going to be communing with in a moment is a foreshadow of that. This not only points backward, to remind us that Jesus died for us and the, the, his body and blood are represented in the elements, but it points forward to a time where it tells us in Scripture where we will once again with Christ drink of the fruit of the vine, where we will sup with him in, in eternity, in eternal life, and be in his presence. This meal is a foretaste, a foreshadow of what's to come. For Jesus is the true bread of heaven. He's the bread of life. And in him, we find our eternal satisfaction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word today. I pray, Father, that you would bless it. I pray that we would understand it. And I pray that you give us all the ability to resist the temptation of the devil. And more importantly, that we'd be satisfied completely in you. In Jesus' name, amen.